Have you ever had a situation where you prayed about something that was fairly significant to you and nothing happened like the way you had prayed for it to happen and you just go, well, okay, I prayed and I, it's over. God didn't answer my prayer and uh, all right, I'm moving on. You ever done that? It happens a lot. And I think we forget sometimes that some of the lessons that we've already seen in Scripture. When the Syrophoenician woman went up to Jesus to have him heal her daughter, first of all, he didn't even acknowledge her presence. When she came up, he was silent. And she persisted. And then he told her what? He said, hey, I wasn't sent for you. I can't take what the children's bread and give it to dogs. Put up another barrier, and she still persisted. Well, remember, that lesson was not just for that lady. That Jesus didn't put up a barrier to keep her away. That was never the intention of the barrier. The barrier was a, was a way to draw her faith out to show the disciples and model for them what great faith looked like. Remember, we looked at that back in Matthew 15. And we've been looking at this process of faith and we've described a whole bunch of different kinds of faith, starting with hers being a great faith. And, and we looked at a compassionate faith, how Jesus then went to the Gentiles, even though they were pagan worshipers, even though they didn't have the Jewish scriptures, uh, they didn't have that history that all the Jewish people had. He still went to them. He healed them all, and he fed 4,000 of them, did the same thing in front of them that he did to the Jewish people. All showing this great faith, this limitless faith. And then we saw the different types of faith in chapter 16, the self-sufficient Pharisee faith, which was no faith at all. We saw the short-sighted faith of the disciples where they were thinking about bread when they were with the bread of life. They were, they were with the one who could give them bread with a snap of a finger, and they're worried about if they brought enough bread. And Jesus teaches them a lesson there about the leaven of the Pharisees, but they had a short-sighted faith. Then we see the saving faith of the disciples when Peter says, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. And he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. He's the one who revealed it to you. That's saving faith. Nobody comes to Christ on their own. You're only drawn to Him as the Spirit draws you and God reveals truth to you just like He did with Peter. But then Peter turns right around from saving faith and demonstrates selfish faith because he elevates his plan above God's plan. I think we struggle with that one a lot. It wasn't that Peter didn't have faith that Jesus was who He said He was. It was that He just said, I don't like your plan, so I want my plan to be the one that we carry out and even in the garden even after all the other lessons that came after that he still pulls out a sword and whacks off the ear of the guy trying to implement his plan rather than God's plan and then we saw what Jesus described as really sacrificial faith taking up your cross you know not not doing what you want but doing what I want what my unfolding plan is no man can follow me he says unless you deny yourself and take up your cross so we saw the sacrificial faith and then last week we saw the transfiguration in chapter 17 the first part and the question really was is jesus god 
And why does that matter? The reason it matters is if Jesus is not God, then He's not the sacrifice. Because if He's just like every other human being, He's sin-tainted. He's got sin, the same stain of sin on Him, and He is not a legitimate sacrifice for our sin. That's why that's really important. And so Matthew brings out the fact that He was God, He was deity, and there, we saw the four witnesses. We saw the witness of the unveiled light where Jesus pulls His skin off, lest the disciples see that. We saw the witness of the written Word represented by Moses and Elijah. We saw the uh, witness of God's holy presence when His voice spoke and boomed and the disciples were so terrified they went down on their faces. And then we saw the witness of the prophetic messenger. Elijah, who was coming. And Jesus, again, this is the second time he's explaining it. May it well, it's the second recorded time. He, he may have told him 15 times, but they still didn't get it, that John the Baptist was Elijah. John the Baptist was Elijah. Again, he tells them. And so, he now moves in, Matthew does, to again dealing with this issue of faith because it's so important for us to think about. I want you to think about in your life, is there something right now so big to you that it's like a mountain? Is, is there an obstacle? Is there an issue that is like a mountain to you? Because in this passage, a lot of times people have taken this to mean physically. Jesus was never intending this to physically mean a mountain. It was always symbolic of a mountain in our life, something that we're dealing with that is so big that we don't have the capacity to deal with. And and so we see this mustard seed mountain story at the beginning, but then we see Jesus again teaching about the resurrection, which I think personally was a mountain for the disciples to get past, that Jesus was a suffering Messiah and then we see him dealing with the government and making a statement really of our responsibility here on earth even, even though we are citizens of heaven. So I want to give you the, the outline and we're going to come back and then we'll deal with each one of these. But again, it, it, God's calling us to a great faith that's lived out. Not just something spoken, but we live out a great faith and He calls us to live out a great faith in His power even when we can't see His plan. Even when, when we meet resistance, He calls us to live out a great faith. It's easy to live out a great faith when you've got a bank account that's locked and stocked and everything's good and you go into your closet and you've got plenty of clothes and you go into cupboard, you've got plenty of food. Oh yeah, i got great faith. God's a great provider. But what about when there's nothing in your closet, nothing in your cupboard? and nothing in your bank account. Is God still good? Is God still great? Is your faith lived out it's still in a great way? Well, He also calls us to live with a great faith in His plan, even though it includes suffering and things we don't like to do. Because that shows a trust in Him that He knows better that what He wants to do, and we have a trust. That's, that's living out that faith. He wants us to live that great faith out in His plan. 
instead of complaining. If you complain all the time about God's plan, what kind of faith is that demonstrating to the world? Not, not a faith at all. But you're saying, I hate, I don't like this. I don't want this. Listen, I'm not saying you've got to like the pain. But it's a trust in God and it's living a God-glorifying life even when things are falling down around you. And finally, He calls us to live out of great faith in His provision for our earthly responsibilities even though we're aliens here. And by that, what I mean is we don't shirk our earthly responsibilities in the name of Jesus. There are people who say, well, I'm not paying taxes. The government's supporting abortion, so I'm not going to pay taxes. I've heard people say that. I actually know a guy that went to jail for that. That's not a good witness. And it's certainly not the witness that Jesus would want because He lays out in this passage clearly that we have earthly responsibilities and in order not to offend, we meet those responsibilities and we trust Him to provide for us to meet them even when we don't know that they're being rightly used. Do you think the Romans or the Jewish leaders used the tax money that they collected in ways that honored God? No, they didn't do that. But yet Jesus still paid the tax and we're going to see that. So uh, we're going to read this starting in verse 14 and come back and then look at each one of these. So starting in 17 verse 14, join with me. And it says, and they came to And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the lake, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. May God bless his word. Have you ever had an experience where you go to a retreat? Uh, you know, John, you were just sharing about a men's conference down there. And it was probably really jazzed up, right? I mean, you had a great time being there and, and you felt the presence of God there because all these men are there to worship God. 
And you go to a place like that, you leave your work behind, you leave everything else behind, and you're just all caught up in the moment. But then you have to leave that and come back to reality. You come back to the sin-stained world that's so apparent, the mundaneness of life. That's what happens here in 17. The disciples are up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John up there with Jesus. They just see His glory revealed. They're just in the presence of Moses and Elijah. And guess what? They come down the mountain. There's a crowd with arguments going on and the nine that are left behind are caught up in the middle of it. I mean, I feel like sometimes I used to run to the store and I'd come home and the kids were just going crazy. I'm like, whoa, what happened? When I left, everything was good. That's kind of what's going on. They come down. The, the crowd is going crazy because this guy brings his son up who's an epileptic. The word epileptic there literally means moonstruck. It means um, people used to associate crazy behavior with the moon and gravitational pull of the tides and stuff like that. That's where we get the, the word lunatic from. Luna means moon. I'm serious. Lunatic. Yeah. It was associated with that. And so this word literally means moonstruck. He was having some type of grand mal seizures or something that was caused by a demon. And throwing himself into fire. Think about it. If you've ever seen anybody have a seizure, it's pretty traumatic. It, it, they just kind of lose control. Their bodies start convulsing. So back in that day, they had open fires everywhere, like in India. When we'd see over in India, you'd see those. And so he'd just start going into that seizure, and he'd be in a fire and get burned, or he'd be in near water and he could drown. Can you imagine the angst of that father walking with that son, having to deal with that? And so he had heard about the healings, and he didn't come looking for a savior. He didn't come looking for a master. He just wanted his son to be healed, right? So he comes up and these men are supposedly with Jesus. They had already been healing people. And so he goes, can you heal my son? And I think they really tried. I think they tried, but what happened is they failed with him. Even though they had done it before, even though back in Matthew 10, 1, they had been commissioned and given the authority by God to do it. And in Matthew 10, 8, they did it, it said. They went out and they actually cast out demons. Now they see a guy who brings their son up and they can't, they can't do it. He's foaming at the mouth. That would be kind of eerie to see somebody do that. And all of a sudden, they, they go... Demon, come out! And nothing happens. Demon, come out! You try it, Bartholomew. Now you try it, Simon. I, don't, I can't get it. It ain't working. And so the scribes and a crowd's gathering around and they start bickering back and forth. I can just hear the scribes. <laughs> I told you they were fakes. None of this stuff. This guy's not the Messiah. He's a fraud. He represents Satan. He's, they're just tricksters. And so this crowd, they start going back and forth. Jesus comes on the scene. And what does He do? Oh my gosh, I'm ready to come home, Father. Just bring me home. I'm tired of dealing with these people. I mean, how many times do I have to rebuke them with this saying, O ye of little faith. The, see, the issue was 
not the size of their faith. It was the growth of their faith. The issue is, if you look at the, the mustard seed that he uses here, it's the smallest of seed, but it grows into a big tree. The issue that he's dealing with is the growth of their faith. It's not that it's that small. It's that it's not growing the way it should. And I, to be honest, I had not thought about that. I had always kind of thought, you know, it's just if you have this little bitty faith, you can do this. But the issue was their faith wasn't growing like it should. The mustard seed was an illustration of the fact that their faith should have been growing. I mean, my gosh, they see Jesus do all this stuff. They go and do all this stuff. And now they encounter this. And just like the woman who had the barriers, instead of persisting and going to God in prayer, they probably depended on themselves. Or they, they were prideful about the fact that they had done it. And then all of a sudden when they realized they can't do it, now they don't know what to do. Peter's not there. James is not there. John's not there. Jesus is not there with them. There are the, these remaining nine, they, their leaders are gone, and the biggest leader, Jesus, is gone. And instead of going to God the Father, when they'd already been out on the boat without Jesus, and He rebuked them, why? Because they're striving to get to the other side, and instead of praying, they're trying to do it in their own. And he just walks out there to them. And as soon as he gets in the boat with them, bam, they're at the other side. You see, it's about the growth of the faith. That's what the mustard seed represents. And what he's calling us to is to live out this great faith in our lives in his power. Even when we can't see his plan. Even when we meet resistance. And too often, we just meet resistance and, okay, we're done. Okay, this is not where I'm supposed to be. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. Instead of keep going to God and saying, okay, God, I'm here. Numbers 13, Caleb, Joshua, the spies come back. And 10 of the guys go, hey, we can't go over there. Those guys are too big. They're going to kill us. They're going to wipe us out. Caleb says, you know what? Let us go. Let us go because he knew that God could deliver them if God's calling them to be there. He knew. He didn't know how he was going to do it. God didn't reveal to him how he was going to do it. He just knew he could do it. Yeah. David, when he went out to meet Goliath, hey, he can't talk that way about our God. He, our God is greater than that big giant. Daniel, in uh, Daniel 6, you can't pray anymore. It's a law against the, the rules of the kingdom to pray. He didn't know how God would deliver him when he was put in the lion's den, but he knew he had to pray. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. One of the greatest lines, I think, in the Bible is when they say, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will never bow down and worship. Why? Because they knew that their faith was in God, and if God wanted them to suffer, they were willing to suffer. For most of us, we want a faith without suffering. We want a faith without pain. We want a faith where we see the plan. And so in all these, I could go to Hebrews 11 and read that whole passage there of, of people with great faith. Rahab, none of them knew how God was going to work stuff out. 
And so often we have to have the vision before we say yes to God. And, and even when we say yes to Him and then we encounter something, too often we just throw the towel in like the disciples did here. And that's why Jesus said this kind only comes out, what? Through prayer. And remember, fasting is not a formula. Fasting was the intensity of the prayer. It's a very, very intense prayer. And so I want you to just think about the disciples here and I want you to think about your own life. Is your faith something that persists and grows? That's what he's rebuking them for here. That their faith is not growing. The mustard seed, get that. That's what he's saying. The, 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 the key verse is 1720. That nothing is impossible with God. Do we really believe that? Or do we limit God? Remember we talked about limiting him a few weeks ago. Well, second, he goes into this second thing where he actually teaches them again about the resurrection. And he's calling us to live out this great faith in his plan, even when it does include suffering and things we don't like. It's the third time he's talked to them about the resurrection. Matthew 16, verse 21. Matthew 17, verse 12. And now here. And this time he says, I will be delivered. In other words, he's telling them he's going to be betrayed. And... I mean, think about it. He's telling them he's going to be betrayed by somebody close to him. And it's okay because that's part of the plan. And even at the end when, when you know, Peter takes, Peter, don't you know I could call down 10,000 angels at any time. This is part of the plan. And so often for us, I think if we're really, really honest about our faith, we would admit one of the biggest struggles we have is that we just want God to show us how he's going to get us out of a situation or how he's going to get us through a situation. And it's hard when we don't see that to have that kind of faith that we need to demonstrate to other people. I think of Pastor Brunson over in uh, Turkey, the guy who was in jail for two years. Do you think, let me just ask you for this, think about this for a second. Do you think if you would have told him the day after he got put in prison, hey, it's going to last about two years. But in two years, you're going to be praying with the President of the United States in the Oval Office. You're going to be fine. You're going to get through this. And uh, you just endure this for two years and live out a life of faith. Do you think that would have helped him? You think he would have been much stronger early on? I think so because he he knows that there's okay. See, the biggest thing for us is not knowing, but that's what requires faith. If we know, there's no faith required. And so here's the thing: he said the first year was the hardest. I listened to an interview the other day of him. He said the first year was the hardest because I thought God abandoned me. I thought I was, I, I just, I really struggled. He says with my faith. He was in a cell built for eight with 20 other people. And there were, there were only beds for eight in there for two years. Now you think about it. Think about, and, and everybody else in there is a Muslim, and he said everybody tried to convert him every day. He's the only Christian in the cell. 
and everybody's trying to convert him. Some might maybe not in nice ways, but for two years he dealt with that. But I'm just looking at this picture they're showing, a video of him praying with President Trump. And I'm thinking, he had to go through what he went through there. He never would have been in the White House. I'm telling you, President Trump isn't going to randomly ask a church planner and pastor in another country to come to the White House. But because he went through what he went through, he's up there praying with the president. And he said in this interview, I could never in my wildest dreams imagine that I would be praying for the president of the United States in the Oval Office. But see, God calls us to trust Him and to live out this great faith even when His plan includes suffering and things we don't like. And we try to manage those things. We try to manage our pain. We try to manage our suffering to control it instead of just saying, okay, God, I'm yours. I'm not saying we ought to desire pain and want to jump on that pain train. What I'm saying is, as we go through it, like my friend Ross said, he talked to me the other day and he told me, he goes, you know what? I listened to this doctor who had cancer and he's a 14 year survivor. And he said, he's a Christian. He said the first two years, my goal was survival. And then a light bulb went off in me at the two year mark and my goal was no longer survival. It was glorifying God with my life. And Ross said, I just want to glorify God with my life. I just want to live out a life that glorifies God. And that's what we all should desire. That is a great faith. Living out that life that says, I trust you even when I can't see how or even if you're going to deliver me like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even if he doesn't, we still will never bow down because our faith and our trust is in God. Yeah. I heard something the other day that really struck me. The size of your face depends on the size of your God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's because exactly it's not the size, saying. it's the object. The object is always more important than the size of your faith. But what Jesus is rebuking them for is not their size. It's the fact that their their faith is not growing. With everything that's been going on. And can we look at them with any kind of condemning eye? I don't think so. I think we do the same thing. How many times has God provided? How many times has He delivered us? And yet, we continue when we hit resistance a lot of times to pull back. Well, then he goes into this last story about the temple tax. And they come up to Jesus, I mean to Peter, not Jesus. They come up, they don't even come to Jesus. That was that was normal. They would go up to a student of a rabbi sometimes. And, and so they come up and they said, hey, doesn't he, does he pay the tax? And Peter said, yes, he does. And then when they get inside, he tells Peter, he says, um, Hey, Peter, let me ask you a question. Who, who Does the children pay taxes? The children of the king? No, they don't pay. Do you think any royalty demands taxes from the children? No. They collect taxes from everybody else to help fund the royal family. And Peter answers the question. He says, yeah, we shouldn't be paying. But in order not to offend, we're going to go and I want you to do this. And what he does he tells Peter to go down to the lake and when he goes down to the lake he tells him to throw in a line Peter uses a a net he doesn't use a line but he tells him and he says the first fish not the second fish not the third fish in other words he's telling Peter don't you're not going to be there all day just go down there throw in a line get a fish and when you get that fish reach into his mouth and he pulls out one of these this this is called a tetra 
drachma, a stator in Greek, or a shekel. It is four days wages. About four years ago, Rachel's cardiologist was on a trip and he bought this for me. This is about 2,000 years old. It's about the same time frame. In fact, this could have been the one that came out of the mouth, but we don't know. <laughs> it, it is a very, very authentic 2,000-year-old shekel tetradrachma or stator. Okay, it is real. And this is exactly what was pulled out of the mouth, according to what the account is. Now, I want you to think about what had to happen for Peter to pull this out. One, the fish had to be directed by God to swallow the thing in the first place. A guy had to own this, or a lady, and had to drop it into the water for it to be swallowed by the fish. I want you to think about the orchestration of God through every minute detail to bring this into Peter's hand to go and pay that tax. If God can do that, is there anything in your life that is outside of His possibility? When I, that's, this story has always fascinated me. When I saw the coin and heard what it was, I was looking at it and I desired it and I, I, I couldn't pay for it. I didn't have the funds to pay for it. I walked away from it. And the doctor who was there with us went back over and bought it for me. And I said, no, I can't take that. I can't do that. That's too much money. I, I can't let you do that. And he goes, no, I want you to have this. And I want you to use it to tell people if you ever tell stories in the Bible that have this, I want you to show them this is real. This stuff really happened. This is a real coin that really you know, these kind of things really did happen. Use it as a, as a teaching aid. But for me, I keep it on my shelf and I look at it and I'm reminded that if God can do that in that fish that Peter had, He can do anything. The other thing that I'm reminded of is 30 of these is what Judas used or received to betray Jesus. And it reminds me too, what, what will make me walk away? Because Judas did it for 30 of those. In this story, oh, when Peter was told to go do that, he paid the tax. And I think God made a statement about our earthly responsibilities, our civic responsibilities, even though we're not citizens of earth. Paul says in uh, Philippians 3.17-20 and Ephesians 2.19 that our citizenship is not here. We're merely sojourners. We're strangers. We're aliens passing through. But in order not to offend and in order to facilitate the gospel spreading, we meet our earthly responsibilities. We pay taxes. We're good citizens. We vote in this country because we have the right to vote. And if you choose not to do that, I don't think you're meeting your civic responsibilities. And I think Jesus speaks to this clear. Now, Peter learned from this, and I, I want you to flip over to Second. Um, I'm sorry, First Peter two. And Peter wrote to people that were being persecuted. He wrote to people that were struggling. And 1 Peter 2, 9 through 17, the first part, he reminds them that we're, this is not our home. 
And he says, but you are a chosen race. And this, this could apply to each one of us because it does apply. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. Why, why are we his? Right here. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners or aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here it is. Be subject or submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution or ordinance whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as free people who are free, not using your freedom as a coverage for, or cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God and honor the emperor. We don't have an emperor. We have a president. But that applies. And guys, I've heard people, and I've been one of them, that has disparaged our president. It doesn't matter if it was Barack Obama, George Bush, Bill Clinton, or President Trump. We have a command to honor the emperor and we pray for him, and we pray for our governor, we pray for our leaders, and we have a responsibility to not let anything we do be an offense to the gospel going out in that way. Now, one extreme is to say, well, the only thing that matters is the gospel, and we shouldn't be involved in politics at all. That's one extreme. The other extreme is when we're so involved in politics that people think that we're driven by the political uh, status of our country instead of the gospel. That's the other extreme. Our, our balance in that is that we take our civic responsibilities to vote, to be involved in the political process, to, um, if you, you can be a part of a political action committee. You can be campaigning, you can be involved. In fact, Blake and I have had several conversations about how tepid the church has been in being involved the church just withdraws because ah, i don't want to deal with it instead of going and being a statesman and a spokesman to go and say in front of people hey i care about our country i care about the fact that that this country was founded on judeo-christian principles and i would like to advocate for us to continue that the issue comes when we hate people because of different political ideology. If you tell me you're a Republican and I hate you simply because you're a Republican, it's wrong. If you tell me you're a Democrat, you can't be a Christian and be a Democrat. It's impossible. How do you know that somebody may not be a missionary within that group? I'm not saying they are. I don't know how God chooses to work. I know he took Simon the Zealot 
and Matthew the tax collector and he said you guys are going to come together and and you're going to exist under my ideology as your supreme ideology put your political differences aside for the kingdom change in society comes from the inside out it comes from the gospel going out and the gospel changing people's lives and God's people occupying places in office and being around people who have authority in office. Look at Mike Pence. I think Mike Pence is a true blue believer. And I think he's had a profound influence on Donald Trump. I think he's a Daniel in that administration, to be honest with you. So the issue for us is, are, are we, I, I've known Christians that say, I'm not paying taxes, or I don't want to get involved in politics, or I don't want to get involved in the process. I just, I don't have any time for that. That's not the right answer either. Our response is to be a voice of truth and a voice of love and a voice for the gospel in those environments. And, and it requires great faith to do that. But if he can bring a coin to Peter through a fish, he can give us the faith we need to do those things. And, and yeah. Doug, to add to just, <coughs> maybe I'm wrong here, but isn't there a season to, to follow God's law, man's law, especially when it comes to abortion? When God's law is in conflict with man's law, we always choose God's law. Amen. But there's ways of doing that and the way we do that is loving and caring and being a light. It's not telling people, you know, God hates fags. You're going to die and burn and go to hell. You can tell them the truth, but I just can't see Jesus with a sign that says God hates fags. I'm sorry, I just can't see that. So that's not the way. But we do have a responsibility. Daniel did that when he prayed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did that when they refused to bow down. The disciples did that in Acts 4.19 when they were told, don't speak about Jesus. They said, well, hey, we can't. We've got to obey God's law. So yes, when those laws conflict, we definitely do that. Uh, we, we, we always choose God's side. But I, I wanted to give you guys one more thing. Uh, another last as we finish. I want you to take this with you because when I was in Galilee last year, I bought this thing full of mustard seeds. And I want you to see this. Can you see the mustard seed right there? Look at that. That thing's tiny, right? That tiny thing grows into a big tree. Right? Matthew 17, 20 on here. And sometime today, I want you to write your mountain on here. And you can put today's date. And I just want you to, when you see the mustard seed, I don't want you to think about the size of the faith. I want you to think about what the faith grows into. And God is working in each one of our lives to grow our faith. And ask yourself, do I trust Him? Do I trust Him with my mountain? Do I trust Him? Do I trust His plan? And do I trust Him to provide for me to be a good citizen and a good, faithful witness of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a great reminder to us all.
And uh, Kenny, will you close our time in prayer?